0: LifeWay Lifeway. Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the 5 Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, And today, I'm back again with Brad Wagner. Hey, Todd. Who needs no introduction. (laughs) Uh, So we've talked about him on the podcast before. He's been on now twice, um, breaking down books. And you know where... um, You you know where I I say I got a lot of this stuff from is from uh, him and his classes in seminary. There was a a guy named Warren Benson, who I've also talked about on the podcast before, uh, who passed away, and then I just wandered into Brad's office and just kept wandering into Brad's office. Were you looking for
1: Dr. Benson? Is that what you were doing? No. uh,
0: You, I think, actually approached me after that had happened because you had seen that we had you know, some kind of special relationship. Right. And you didn't offer, <laughs> you didn't say, hey, you can hang out with me. And I can't,
1: student. I can't fill in for Dr. Benson. You just said, hey,
0: um, I know this guy meant a lot to you. And, yeah. you know, you were uh, encouraging and uh, somewhat comforting, which is, that's it's uh, unusual. That's very caught character. me on a good day. Caught you on a good day.
1: Uh, if and I may so, interrupt you, Warren Benson <laughs> was one of my mentors. So when I, I have a lot of seminary background, but some of my time was at Trinity Seminary in the mid-80s, and uh, I worked on a portion of a doctorate and uh, an MA there, and Warren Benson, along with Robert Coleman, were the two men that mentored me during those years, so I go, right. it goes way back. What I remember most,
0: uh, one of my most frustrating things about being uh, in seminary now, you know, I did my Greek and my Hebrew and, and all that kind of stuff, but... Some of the guys that were in some of his classes, it was you know one of the electives that they had to do, mm-hmm. and they just didn't get it. Because Benson told a lot of stories. Yep. And But it was like he did work with Coleman. Yep. He was on staff with Lloyd Ogilvie. Yep. I mean, it was he, like— He knew everybody. He knew everybody yep. and had a, a, a very good story yep. uh, that went along with it. And as you guys know, um, if you want to know whether or not Somebody really understands uh, a competency or a concept or one of your core values at your church. Ask them to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Ask them to tell a story that exemplifies that core value, and you'll you'll know whether they really get it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the things I, I really appreciated about Benson um, is is the story aspect. Um, but anyway, uh, Brad. Uh, it really fed my, I think, love of of reading books and uh, especially business books and how they apply to church. Um, and you know that's one of the things that we're here to talk about today. We are actually going to be talking about uh, a book that was written in 1967.
1: Right. What is that book, Brad? <laughs> Yeah, the effective executive by Peter Drucker, really a truly a classic in, in every way. And I'm glad you asked me to talk about this book because it's been a while since I've read it. And right. I said, I'm going to reread it again and took a lot of notes and it's, but it's, you a, took it's a ton of notes. And yeah. once
0: again, uh, we will have a downloadable, thanks to Brad and his uh, synopsis. So if you ever uh, if you're thinking about an executive summary for this, or, hey, do I really want to read this book, you can read that um, and decide for yourself. I would, I would say this is a, a pivotal book for really America. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you look at who Peter Drucker uh, was, uh, he died in 2005. But when you look at what he, all the books that he wrote, and all the people that <clears throat> he was really uh, inspirational to. I think one of the things that you have to understand is his he is known as the ultimate management thinker of his time. Correct. I mean he he chiseled and shaped the corporation as it exists today. And one of the interesting things is uh, Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. when I say we're guys, we're doing a book from 1967. You're starting to do math there and go, "Wow, this is a really, really old book. Does it have anything for me today?" Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff Bezos says yes. It's the most important one yeah. and is the one that helped build Amazon. Yeah, um, which we have a love hate relationship with. Right, but anybody who does who loves books. Um, <clears throat> but anyway. <clears throat> uh, so, what is this book about, Brad? And why does it matter from an idea perspective?
1: Well, he studied uh, both in terms of his own experiences and then interacting with a lot of other business leaders. He really did study, you know, what does effectiveness look like. And in, in some ways, I feel like uh, um, Covey and uh, Collins had to have. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, taking a lot of the basic ideas that Drucker put out and and put them in a more contemporary setting for their time, but you know, just wh- why why are some leaders really effective at a, at accomplishing results and some aren't, and um, and so this similar to the book we talked about our last podcast, uh, five practices uh, in the previous book uh, it was five exemplary habits and right. here it's five practices and. I think they're still true, and he just does a really good job of explaining them, and And you want me to mention the five? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so uh, an effective leader first, uh, they know where their time goes, and it starts out really practical, like, because, you know, no Drucker understands there we all have this same commodity of 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and some people really use that well and others don't. And he, you know, that's where I saw the connection to Covey's seven habits where the four quadrants, uh, and so really, Drucker talks a lot about what Covey would call quadrant two, right. being very selective and careful with your time. So he starts there. Hey, there's th-
0: nothing wrong, Brad, by the way, with uh, taking something that somebody has as a, a very original idea and is, is wonderful, and then someone else coming along and putting it into a sure, quadrant. It happens all the time. <laughs> it happens all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially when I read something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The second thing is they focus on outward contribution. So, their effective leaders, they they fight against just being totally caught up in the day to day machinery of their business or ministry or company or whatever. And because that any any place that's busy can do that, but they they force themselves to be looking outside, uh, outside at the what the customer really wants and needs outside right. of trends in culture, trends in technology, and in our setting, trends in the church. So uh, outward focus, number three, they build on strengths. Now, this is the part was, you have to kind of read it a couple of different times. What he's what he's trying to say is there, there are no perfect employees. There's no, in fact, he fights against the Superman theory that, an executive, wherever they are within the company, and he's when he uses the word executive. By the way, he's not talking about just C-suite leaders. No, he's talking about often he calls them knowledge uh, leaders, people within organizations that have significant leadership responsibility. But he 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 reminds us that nobody has all the strengths. Nobody's perfectly perfectly gifted. But you really have to hone in on your own personal strengths and you have to understand the strengths of your team. And so he he did, he spends quite a bit of time on that. Then fourth, he talks about concentrating on a few things, and this is particularly, I think, relevant for the person at the top of, of any organization, but concentrate on a few things where superior performance will produce outstanding results. That's the 80-20 rule. Yeah.
0: Really focus on the 20% that really matters, Figure out what that is.
1: Yeah. And you know, and I'm and I'm sure as I've observed uh, various organizations and and uh, leaders is that there there's a there's a real risk there because it's you know nobody bats a thousand, but right. to really say you know do we really think this idea is going to really make a difference long term? Right. And then the last thing is really he has two chapters at the end about making smart decisions. And we can elaborate on some of that if you want to. But those are the five practices that he believes effective executives follow.
0: So what I love about this book is uh, it is timeless. It is indeed timeless because he, he was talking about that concept of you know the importance of time and what are we talking about today. Um, everything from uh, the Higgs to uh, everybody's gonna talk, all, whether it's atomic habits or it's uh, grit or whatever, all of this actually comes back into the same same stuff that we've known for 60 years and it just gets recycled over and over and over again because we don't get good at it. And what he's saying here is to be effective, it's not about being intelligent. It's not about even being hardworking or knowledgeable. It's not about having special gifts or talents or an aptitude or Anything like that, it is demanding to do certain very uh, simple practices over and over again. It's being disciplined, disciplined. in these areas yep. that, that you just mentioned, uh, and that these practices aren't inborn. All of them have to be learned. He would say effectiveness is a learned uh, yep. habit. So uh, that is what the book is, and and what's it about, and why does it matter to you? So let's do uh, quick hitters. We kind of already talked about. Uh, who the author is, so I'm going to skip that one. He is the the management thinker of the, the late 20th century, for sure. Uh, who's the
1: book written for, Brad? Well, obviously, most of the time, he's talking about business leaders. Uh, and in his time, he's talking about the companies that were really the, the significant companies, companies of his days, whether it's Sears or General Motors. But right. he refers to a lot of different companies in there. Um, so, business leaders, but but again, similar to the book we talked about, the leadership challenge by Kusis and Posner, it's so applicable to really anybody who's leading a cause, leading a, right. a group,
0: leading yeah, if leading, you're leading anything. a team. Right. If you move from being an individual contributor in uh, in on any team to leading a team, uh, then. You know, congratulations! This book is for you. And and frankly, um, the thing that I failed to mention uh, when I was talking about you know grit and all these other books is he, I think, effectively looked out into the future and saw that almost every organization is going to be a knowledge-based organization. He didn't he didn't look out and forecast that. But what I'm saying is he spoke to that right. in that day, which is amazingly, amazingly. Uh, Insightful.
1: So let's get into quotes. Um, yeah, boy, there are many. It's so hard, you know. Uh, it's like picking your children, you know, which which <laughs> which kid would you pick? But uh, um, I'll I'll pick a few and and you interrupt me whenever you want right. to in terms of on under.
0: Well, let's go. Let's go back and forth.
1: Okay. Uh, this one I the first one I I highlighted was if the executive lets the flow of events determine what he does, he will fritter himself away uh, in operations. He will be certain to waste his knowledge and ability and to throw away what little effectiveness he might have achieved. So again, referring this to the Seven Habits book, this would be like quadrant one, uh, high urgency but low importance things, right? And so he he really hits hard on executives have to fight the fight to not get sucked into the day-to-day or the minutia or whatever word might be uh, used. Now, another thing he... He talks about here is the the truly important events are on the outside. Uh, They are changes in trends. They're not trends. They're changes in trends. These determine ultimately success or failure of an organization and its efforts. The danger is that executives become contemptuous of information. Now, I didn't, you know, I almost wish I could talk to him about that. But I think what he means is, and it's even more so true today than it was then. We get over... There's so much information, so many books, podcasts, blah blah blah, that sometimes you can get kind of desensitized. And but but what he says is you've got to be thinking out ahead, not focused on what's happening today. Uh, so I think that is interesting. Contemptuous of
0: information.
1: Yeah. Um, Gosh, if you only knew what it's like today.
0: I know because we have more information now than than ever and i mean you know you're in a bad spot as a leader if it's such a difficult balance because you want to know things uh but at the same time i don't uh, yeah contend. can i i really would love to unpack that one
1: yeah you know for me todd and we all have our priorities and how we access information but i'm pretty selective i don't spend for instance, I don't spend a lot of time on social media. Um, so with, with the limited amount of time we have to assess things, current and future things, uh, we, I think we've got to be somewhat selective where we go. You know, I'm big on Harvard Business Review and anything that Harvard Business puts out, Wall Street Journal. Anyway, I could go on and on, but you, there's just not enough time to read anything and everything that flows our way.
0: I think what it's probably talking about is information that doesn't jive with what we're, you know, w- w- with our beliefs. Maybe, uh, because if you look at the, ultimately the success or failure of an organization uh, and its efforts rides on understanding the the change in the trends. And so sometimes there may be a change in a trend that uh, goes against what, we've either sunk time, effort and energy into or identity our identity is tied to. Um, now it's one thing in a church setting. I mean you know there are we don't care uh, as much about trends, but we want to care I say we want to be really careful about not sacrificing what's biblical effective or efficient on the altar of tradition either. So I do think there are some things that um, are traditional. That we don't want to change, or um, this is the way we've done it; it's worked, um, and and maybe that's what I think that's what that means. If I'm, contentu- I'm contemptuous. It's a hard word to say, of information that goes against what I believe. Okay, perhaps could be as a leader because I don't want I don't want to mess with that.
1: Another thing that I would point out that he hit more than once in the book was this idea of consensus. And uh, this really resonated with me because I have said for many years, and Todd, if you were paying attention, when you were a student of mine uh, many years ago, uh, you heard me say this, that consensus is not the precondition of leadership. It is the byproduct of leadership and i've said That's that good, i've said that over and over and over again because in churches particularly there's this idea this utopian uh, naive idea of a consensus model of leadership and it just it's just it doesn't work it's not practical i don't think it ever has been and drucker says a few things in this book that really nails this idea about uh, he believes that decision making gets better due to dissenting points of view. He encourages feedback. He encourages the soliciting of opinions, and he encourages people to argue it out. Right. And um, and so I I don't know that was one of the okay. things that stood say that, out.
0: Say that uh, that maxim axiom. Yeah, whatever consensus
1: it like. is the byproduct of good leadership, not the precondition for it. That's good. You'd almost say it's not the goal. It is the the outcome. Um, And maybe not, maybe even seldom the outcome that there's true consensus. But uh, if you start with consensus, see, I've always said, and even in the church environment, if you start with the consensus model of decision-making— you, 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 its the lowest common denominator in that particular. Whoever is involved right. in the decision making, you have to—the dissenter, the the most negative view or the most uninformed view—wins out. He can hold hostage the organization from moving forward. And so, this is
0: really interesting because I've noticed in uh, in churches that I've personally gone in and done pipeline over a series of of months. So uh, usually those are larger you know, staff settings where we'll go in and we'll work on, you know, story and strategy and then come in and do structure and systems. Well, that's when everybody starts to get off their rails is when you start messing with their day-to-day and their day-to-day language. And so what we'll do is, um, is have, you know, we'll come up with levels and definitions and we'll have divergent conversation. So we've got all these people around tables and each person is at first writing down their, you know, particular viewpoint or definition of what this word means. Uh, And then as a table, they come up with that. And then the tables, I'm up front now and I'm leading the tables. And so each individual table now has chosen one view. And then the whole staff is choosing one view. And what that does is it creates a consensus. And I think half of what churches end up, you know, bringing one of us in to do, is lead that process. Yeah. <laughs> to consensus. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's really good.
1: Now, one of the oxano one of the processes they use, I've I've been um, in my son's church. I've been setting in through the Oxano process, and that he's using. And um, one of the the facilitators are really good about saying, "Are we eighty percent okay?" Right. They repeat that all the time. Are we 80% okay with this idea or that idea or this choice of words? And it it keeps things moving forward.
0: Right, right, right. Good, good. All right. I have a a couple of quotes as well. You may have one or two more, but I want to throw a couple in. Uh, It's more productive to convert an opportunity into results than to solve a problem. Solving a problem only restores equilibrium of yesterday. And so, man, that is really good because as leaders, if we just see our role as, as solving the problem that's in front of us Mm -hmm. and that quadrant that you mentioned from Covey earlier, you know, if we spend our time in the wrong quadrant, we're just solving, we're just solving something that's an immediate, it seems highly important and highly urgent. um, When we may have an opportunity to shift a paradigm um, into growth rather than, than just solving problems. So I love that quote.
1: Yeah. And that quote, if I can jump in and it really ties in with one of his ideas of slouching off yesterday, I I think they're related. So if you're, if you're always looking for the problem or always spending a lot of energy solving the problem, it keeps you stuck in the current situation and what he calls looking downward in the organization versus looking outward toward the opportunity, toward the new thing, toward the future. And, um, in anyway we could talk more about slouching off yesterday if you want but I think those are related
0: uh, the next one for me would be uh, kind of what I alluded to before intelligence imagination and knowledge are central resources but only effectiveness actually converts them into results so it's great if you've got a great vision or you're super you're super intelligent or you know, You you can get everybody fired up about something or you're the smartest guy in the room, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, uh, only effectiveness actually converts that into any real result. Uh, What else you got?
1: Well, uh, something I may have – should have said early on is one of the big things he focuses on is the word contribution. He's really, really big on leading objectively, not emotionally. He even gets into – staffing and and the whole idea of not necessarily even feeling like you've got to be close to everybody that is a direct report to you where things can get emotional and subjective. But he's really big on concentrate on the contribution. What are the results? What are the measurements? How do we define success? And, and really... And, and again, I thought again of the book, "The Four Disciplines of Execution." Right. Uh, another book that I think could, in some ways, uh, trace back to Peter Drucker, and so that that's just one of the things that stands out um, about the book in my mind that's helpful. Uh, the other thing would be that I think is relevant for the church would be uh, staffing for growth. There's a book many years ago by Macintosh. Macintosh, correct? You called "Staff Your Church for Growth." And I don't know if there's a better book today that's been there's written. <laughs> you know, that's amazing because that book's been out a long time. It has been. But the concept there, Drucker, I think, would would uh, support the that book. I think in that author, he would say, you have to put the right people, and again, even back to Collins here, the bus right. analogy, put the right people in the right seat, have the right expectations of them, make sure their talents are aligned with the expectation, and then measure Measure, objectively measure whether or not they're getting done what they're supposed to get done. And so I think there's relevance for the church in this book and when it comes to how you staff.
0: Good deal. All right, my last one is uh, it goes back to that idea of having uh, healthy conflict and wrestling through things. Uh, a decision without a without a good alternative is a desperate gambler's throw. And so, you know, just meaning, hey, if the decision was made uh, behind closed doors or you made the decision and there was no conversation around that or no um, ideas or we don't want to bog ourselves down with, you know, we don't have to brainstorm every problem that comes about, Uh, the more clear your processes and systems are and the more that they align with your culture the easier decisions should be to make absolutely so i'm not saying you have to wrestle through every decision but especially big decisions uh if they if you don't have an alternative if there wasn't a decent alternative to whatever you decided then it's a desperate gambler's throw according to drucker so i like healthy conflict and i like uh wrestling through stuff because sometimes you have to fall back on one of those uh, one of those things that we didn't go in this direction, but this didn't work. So what's the plan B? Right. We've got a good plan B because we actually wrestled through this and right. thought through it well. Right. Good deal. All right. Um, let's get to
1: our next thing. Well, what are some similar books? Well, it's um, it's funny because uh, when I filled out that, that question, it was really very similar to when we talked about the Leadership Challenge. And, and so the books for me, Leadership Challenge, Good to Great – I still think Linciani's books are, are always highly relevant uh, in this kind of world of business and leadership. The Speed of Trust, The Four Disciplines of Execution. Um, I mentioned uh, The uh, The Seven Habits by Covey. Uh, uh, I, and I think even Hans Fensel's book, The Ten Mistakes Leaders Make, uh, huh. all of these books are going to have some real similar trends about what to do and what not to do.
0: Right. I would say, yeah, I'm echoing pretty much everything you said. Anything, Covey? I mean, Covey even wrote um, First Things First. Right.
1: Which is like a chapter yeah.
0: title in here. So. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah I, I'm right.
1: beginning to see that Drucker fed a lot of other people. Hey, hey,
0: that's all right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to knock on Covey. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I'm not going to go there. Uh. Okay, so last thing before we get uh, to our real question about how applicable this is to leadership in the church. Is this a— Summary, skim, sit down, or listen, and why?
1: I think it's a sit down. At first, first of all, a lot of books have a lot of air in them, You know, a lot of repetition, right. and I feel like this book is pretty dense. It's, I found myself wanting to read every sentence. It's dense, but not long. Not, yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not a, long, guys. It's not a, it's not a difficult dense, read. Right.
0: Don't think we're, you know, it's not divine conspiracy. No, no, or, or no, or no, no.
1: He just read. doesn't waste his time. That's right he gets to the point, he illustrates it well. And so to me, it's a sit down, you know, it's a fairly fast read, um, unless you do what I did, which was do a synopsis.
0: Bust it up. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to say the same thing because of the the length guys, it's like 180 pages. So you can knock that out. Come
1: yeah, on. absolutely. Uh,
0: and it is worth it. Like he, yeah. like Brad said, he doesn't waste words. So That's one of the things I appreciate most about authors. It was when they don't waste
1: words. Right.
0: All right. How is this book applicable to leadership in the church?
1: Well, I've been touching on that, Todd. You know the 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 whole idea of staffing your church for growth, um, the whole idea of of not getting stuck in the past. Now, this is a little tricky, I think, for churches. In fact, if if I may, let me read a couple of comments from Drucker on this slouching off yesterday. He says, the first rule for the concentration of executive efforts is to slouch off the past that has ceased to be productive. Sounds a little bit like Eric and Tom's book, Simple Church has some correlation there. Executives, whether they like it or not, are forever bailing out the past. This is inevitable. Today is always the result of actions and decisions taken yesterday. And so he's just trying to make a point of it's so easy to get stuck in the past or stuck in today versus the future. Then he goes on, cut those inherited activities and tasks that have ceased to promise results. And then lastly, he says, no one has much difficulty getting rid of the total failures. They liquidate themselves. Yesterday's successes, however, always linger on long beyond their productive life. Unless they are pruned and pruned ruthlessly, they drain the lifeblood from an organization. Now, I want to add a caveat. I think it's a little tougher in a church environment, though. You, it is. You, you, you know, Sometimes there's gold a plates you attached can, to those yeah. people. Right. You so. could be more ruthless in in some business settings. In, in the church, the sacred cows or the people that have a lot of affection toward one thing or another, it can be trickier. But I still personally believe right. we have to avoid another thing I've talked about a lot, Todd, avoid misplaced compassion. A lot of times in the church, either out of fear of conflict or whatever, or yep. we don't want to hurt people's feelings, or right. we have compassion for people who still love something in the past, right. we fail to remember our compassion needs to be put externally. All the people in the community we're trying to reach. Right. And if we get stuck in yesterday we can't reach them as effectively as we should.
0: Well, the the other thing is we tend to look upon those things um, as they as they were originally, and not as they currently are as well. So, um, meaning, hey, this ministry that is going today uh, has a great past. It was perfectly in alignment with our purpose of making disciples at one time, but that kind of drifted to. Being more affinity and being a place where, you know, maybe um, people connect or maybe it's now run by one group and they don't want to give anything up. I mean, I think over the course of time, you can have that drift. The other thing is it may no longer be effective. So You're right. there's a, I don't pretend to believe that you, um, you watch some of the uh, 90 second leadership things that I do, but there's a quadrant that I actually made that was. Um, is this in alignment with our purpose, which is making disciples? Uh, and how deeply seated is this in the culture? And then if it's not in alignment and it's not deeply seated, you can stop it. Yeah. And <clears throat> if it's, you know, if it's up here, you want to like stabilize and scale that. You want to, of course, m- move things up and to the right, blah, blah, blah. But in the bottom quadrant, as you said, Brad, uh, I think you were alluding to, there's a starve category. And that's something that, it may not be perfectly in alignment with my purpose, but it is so deeply seated in the culture, I'm just going to have to bide my time. I, if I go after that now, I am not going to be able to do some of the other things I'm going to do or I'm going to get run off on a rail.
1: Yep. That's one of the trickier parts, I think, of leading the church is knowing how fast to change and what to change. Um, but I, I personally believe that we've been maybe too cautious would be one way of wording it. Uh, the last comment I have, Todd, it would be in terms of relevance for the church would be how the the pastor or the staff member spends uh, his, his time. Right. And I'm always talking to my son, Brandt, who's a lead pastor in Lebanon, Tennessee. And I remind him all the time, you wear three hats. You're the shepherd, you're the preacher, and you're the leader. And when you plan your calendar and you look at your week or your month, you have to make sure that all three of those functions have adequate time given to them. And and so I think Drucker has some good ideas in the book about how to ruthlessly protect your time for the important things.
0: Well, and you and I've had this conversation too, not to put you on the spot, but um, even in, so I want to, I want to. Put this out there, and then us have a conversation about it. So I know that in part you believe that those three hats also need to be on in the pulpit. I do. So talk about that, so somebody yeah. listening doesn't immediately go, "Oh, well, it must not be preaching the gospel then," or "Oh, it must be a top no. leader
1: in church." Or, of course, the foundation of preaching is is being true to the Word, exegeting and right. e- e- um, and have an expositional content that's true to the word. Um, gospel, obviously the gospel is, I think, needs to be in every sermon. Right. And so this isn't about deviating from the text or no. the gospel. This is um, about the application side of, you know, we almost right. any book on preaching is gonna talk about application. Right. <clears throat> and But often, sometimes the preachers forget about that and they're content to just exegete the text and and not bring it to a point of application, but even more commonly is the application is, seems to be always aimed at the individual life versus right. the church as a whole. Right. So to me, when you preach, you're leading. You're you're leading right. that church. Not just
0: shepherd, but also leader.
1: The leader. You're the leader. You're leading that church somewhere. And I'm not saying every sermon has an obvious organizational application. Right. But I believe that before, you know, one of the last steps of your sermon prep, when the sermon's pretty well-baked, is to say, now what am I going to say that aligns with the mission, vision, and purpose of the church? Right.
0: That's good. That's good.
1: Every church
0: must be equipped to respond well in the initial stages when learning about instances of sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. And that's why the Southern Baptist Convention, Lifeway, and ERLC partner together to create Becoming a Church that cares well for the abused. This training curriculum consists of a handbook, 13 uh, enhanced video sessions that brings together top experts from various fields to help volunteers and leaders understand and implement the best practices for handling a variety of abuse scenarios at church, school, or in your ministry, you can access these videos and this training and this book all for free at churchcares.com. All right. Uh, let's move on to our fourth question. What are the things that churches should ignore from this book?
1: Well, that, you know, I struggled with that just like with the leadership challenge book. It's like, well, you know, clearly this book is written from the lens of, um, a, a pure business, you know, and although I don't think Drucker, he doesn't drip with a money motive or no. hedonism or materialism or anything like that. He just assumes that the company's going to be doing good for society. Um, right. but, but obviously, Drucker's not thinking about the church. And so that's not going to be there.
0: I, I would say um, I would fall in perfect alignment with him on the importance of making effective decisions. Yeah. But the The conversation that we had earlier about um, uh, <laughs> the church is different, and how yeah, you is. make those decisions and how you lead people through change is different. I think that's the only thing that I would I would say hey can't immediately be applied over. And just like you know Brad just talked about with when when you get to the application portion of your sermon, you're wanting to flip through those different lenses and how you right. look at it. Look at it as a leader. Look at it as a pastor. Look at it as a shepherd. Uh, what was the third one?
1: Uh, leader, shepherd, and teacher, preacher. Teacher. teacher. Uh,
0: so you want to look through all those lenses, yes. Um, and w- when we think about what churches can ignore from this book, you know, obviously, we want to make sure that we're looking at through it with, with those lenses, with our lenses on as uh, leaders in the church and not just leaders in general. So, all right. Uh, last question. What can someone do this week that is listening in light of this book?
1: I think uh, the way Drucker starts out his book is on time. So he starts there. A leader, an effective leader, knows where his or her time goes. So if you started there, the practical application would be, when's the last time you've done a really scrupulous inventory of where your time goes? Todd, it's been a long time since I've done this, but... I used to have a real detailed printout of my day or my week in 15-minute right. increments, you know, and I would occasionally go in and do an—I right. I did not—this was not routine. It was occasionally. I'd go look at where is my time actually going? And so I, I would say of the many possible applications of this book, that would be, I think, where the book would start.
0: Right. That's really good. Um. I was going to say, I've done that off and on. And one, like, okay, so Brad and I haven't spent near as much time as we should since I've been here. Um, but
1: I'm kind of picky who I hang out with. Every, <laughs> uh, but more recently,
0: there's been two or three things that have been like, oh, that's where I got that from. Yeah. <laughs> that
1: was probably you forgot.
0: That was probably another one. Sorry, Brad. That's uh, right. I took credit for that too. All right. Um, uh, yeah, I would. Uh, I, I would say uh, that's the the big thing is being able to say, how am I spending my time? Maybe maybe you look at that in a couple of categories too because uh, you say, hey, w- take an audit. Think about it for just five minutes uh, in silence somewhere and say, hey, where am I slouching off? Where do I feel like I'm slouching off? If you have a team that you lead at your church or – um, you're leading the, the, the staff, uh, as the pastor. Also, I would say, take a moment and say, where are we slouching off? And, you know, do that uh, collectively. It'll, it'll only take you five minutes and you may find something there that's really valuable that you can cut out and spend more time on ministry. The other thing I would say on the opposite side is where are we leading out? Uh, and you may want to take an inventory of that and say, well, I don't feel like I'm I have a few things I'm slouching off on, um, but I also have some things I'm leading out. Or it may be the opposite, and you're like, well, I, I don't have anything I'm leading out on. I don't feel like I'm slouching. I'm just kind of in neutral. Well, that's not a good place to be either. So if you look at those two areas, I think that's one thing that you can do this week to move the ball forward. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, again, this has been a book breakdown of The Effective Executive by Peter F. Drucker. And uh, you can find that on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, we will um, put in links to all the books mentioned in the show notes, which is a lot. Uh, and we'll also make sure that we link to Brad's synopsis of this book. Thanks so much for listening.